Well, good morning and welcome everyone to West Cohasset. I'm glad you're all here this morning, that we can share in this magnificent time of worshiping the God of creation, lifting up high the name of Jesus Christ, and digging into the rich, rich, eternal, unchanging truths of God's word. My name is Michael Corteau, and I'm one of the elders here at West Cohasset. And I count it a great privilege to fill in the pulpit this morning and next for Pastor Joe while he and his family are on vacation. And I pray and trust that God is providing them ample rest and recharging their minds and their hearts for the ministry that God has called them to here at this church. We so love and cherish the friend's own family and are blessed to have the leadership and the teaching that we do in Pastor Joe. Sunday by Sunday, we hear the exposition of truth about God found in His Word, the Holy Bible, and I trust you will find this morning's exposition no different. So if you're here new to West Cohasset, the usual format of preaching is expository. And what I mean by this is we work through a book of the Bible verse by verse, extracting the truths and expounding on its meaning and application for life. And this is the format that I will be using this morning as well, Lord willing, next Sunday as well. The text I have chosen this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. This morning's part sermon will be a part one of a two-part series that I have entitled The Great Triumph and the sweet aroma of Christ. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the seat below you or in the seat in front of you. And you can find the selected text on page 817. Whether speaking or listening, we can't be helped without God. Therefore, after I read through the text, I'm going to ask God for the help that we need and for his blessing. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the aroma of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma of life, excuse me, to the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Thanks God be to his word. Let's bow together and pray. Father in heaven, we come to you needy, needy for your grace, needy for your forgiveness, needy for your word, needy for your divine power. Christ said, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We cannot live without you and your word. Open our ears and our hearts to what you have for us this morning. Help us all see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And help me, Lord, handle this text faithfully. In Christ's name, amen. Now, since as a church we haven't been going through 2 Corinthians, we've actually been going through Colossians, I thought it would behoove us to spend a few moments this morning looking at some background on the letter and the writer that I think will be helpful. 
this section of text is very historical, as the Bible is history. The Bible is just not full of fictitious people and places creating good bedtime stories. Real people, real places in history, approximately 40 writers over a period of 1,500 years recording historical events that happened on this very planet. That is the one thing that makes the Bible so unique compared with any other literary work that, rec- that claims spiritual authority. It is a history of God at work on earth amongst the people that he has created with multiple witnesses saying the, saying the same thing about him. Not just one person claiming revelation from God as the full foundation for its religion. The Bible is open. It says, come, check me out. And you know what? No one has ever proven it wrong because the Bible's history is true. So let's look at the, at the history of this writer, Paul, and establish the setting and context for his work. If you turn with me back one chapter to the first three verses, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the holy people throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here Paul calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And the word apostle means one who was sent. So how was Paul sent by Christ? To be an apostle, you had to have seen the, seen the risen Christ with your eyes, and so you could be an authoritative, authentic, first-hand witness. And you had to have been commissioned by the Christ to be an authoritative spokesman and representative on his behalf. That's what it meant to be an apostle, and Paul claimed that here. The young Saul, before his conversion, he after his conversion, he changed his name to Paul. He was one of the chief persecutors of the early Christian churches. He was a Pharisee and above reproach in every way of life, conduct, ceremonial, and moral keeping of the law. And as Paul later puts it, he was blameless in his conformity to Jewish law and exceedingly zealous in adherence to the Jewish religion. And he was so zealous for the Jews' religion that he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ in order to protect Judaism from departing from the traditions of the fathers. According to Acts chapter 9, Saul set out on a mission to Damascus to capture people who confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and drag them back to Jerusalem where they were then to face trial and eventual execution. However, after approaching Damascus, he was met by the ascended Christ and in that cataclysmic event, Paul is converted and charged by Christ himself to carry the message of the good news amongst the Gentile nation. Paul is commissioned by, as an apostle of Christ to do his work of spreading the gospel. And he reaffirms that here in verse 1. So that is our writer, Paul. A man one moment in extreme opposition to Christ, the next, the man chosen by Christ to set, be set apart for the gospel of God. We are not dealing with the work of a man. We are dealing here with the work of God in a man. So Paul, along with the original 12 apostles commissioned by Christ, are the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. So you ask, where is that foundation today? Right here. As, and Christ is our chief cornerstone. So Paul had come to Corinth on his second missionary journey, at which time he was about halfway through his 30-year ministry. He had been preaching already for some time in Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, ministering in Philippi, then on to Thessalonica, Berea, 
Athens, and then finally into Corinth, where God used him to plant a church there over an 18-month period. It was about 50 to 51 A.D. We can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Paul had written at least four letters to the Corinthian church. The first letter, which is alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, we don't have. But both this letter and 1 Corinthians were generally well-received. However, there were still incredible issues within the church. So Paul wrote what biblical scholars call the severe letter. We don't have this one either. But it is this letter that Paul alludes to and writes about in 2 Corinthians. So what was going on in Corinth that Paul had to write this severe letter, this strong letter of rebuke? Archaeology tells us that the area around Corinth had been occupied by humans for, since at least 3000 B.C., By the 8th and the 7th centuries B.C., the city had reached great power and prosperity, dominating extensive trade routes. In the 2nd century B.C., Corinth came into opposition to Roman rule, and in 146 B.C., it was captured and burned by the Roman consul Lucius Mumius Acacius, who killed the men and sold the women and children into slavery. So for a century, Corinth lay in ruins. So when Paul came to Corinth in 50 A.D., the city was relatively young, young, having been refounded as a Roman colony by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. It was a place of great energy, wealth, and noise. It had a reputation as a very wicked and corrupt city. And by the time Paul had gotten there, it had swollen to a population of about a half a million people. It was steeped in Greek mythology, and one of its main centers was the Temple of Aphrodite, which, according to this pagan religion, was the goddess of love. And in this temple, there were potentially thousands of prostitutes who were priestesses, and each evening they would come down from the mountain from the temple and ply their prostitution religion amongst the people of Corinth. So it was no wonder that the church was wrought in fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, stealing, covetousness, drunkenness, reviling, swindling, everything that Paul uses in his first letter in chapter 5 and 6 was going on. The church continued to be severely influenced by its culture that surrounded them, And it was to their demise because they did not guard against it. They fought with each other, sued each other, took sexual advantage of each other. They went to incest. On top of these sexuality issues, there were swindlers in the church peddling the word of God for profit. These false teachers had managed to come into the church and deceive the members to join in an open mutiny against Paul. And they were attacking Paul in two areas, and they always did this. First, they would attack his apostolic authority, and then they would attack his doctrine. These false teachers would deceive people by stating that Paul is a self-appointed man, he's not authentic, he's not real, therefore he cannot be trusted. So this is what Paul faced when writing to the Corinthian church. And this is where we find ourselves in chapter 2. So let's move into the text. Verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So here's the situation. Paul had sent Titus back to Corinth with a severe letter. Titus was then to return and meet Paul and report on their response. And they are apparently to rendezvous in Troas. But when Titus did not show up in Troas, Paul decided to leave Troas and head for Macedonia and try and meet up with them along the way. Paul was deeply grieved over the church and what their response was. Did he alienate them? 
did they repent? Would they turn away, turn away from the incest, the quarrels, the false teachers? He had so much heartache over that church that he goes on in chapter 11 and 12 in 2 Corinthians that compared with all his whippings, his beatings with rods, being stoned nearly to death, his shipwrecks, all the dangers that he faced in the ministry, nothing brought him more grief than his concern for the Corinthian church. So Paul had come to Troas. Troas was a seaport city on the Aegean Sea in northwest Asia Minor at the mouth of Dardanelles, founded about 300 B.C. Let me give you a little, little geography here. So this is Greece, up through here, and we move over into uh, what was called Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. So down here was Corinth, and uh, through Greece, and Macedonia uh, was up here, up here, in between the Aegean Sea, over here was Troas on the other side of the Aegean Sea. So Augustus had made Tro- Troas a Roman colony, and Paul had been there before, according to Acts chapter 16. But apparently on his first visit, he did not found a church. A church is mentioned in Troas in Acts 20, so it was most likely that he founded the church on that brief visit. So Paul had come, up, come to meet Titus in Troas and to preach the gospel. That Greek word preach, euangelion, in the Greek means the proclamation of the grace of God manifest and pledged in Jesus Christ. Paul had come to spread the good news, the gospel. And by gospel I mean Christ died for our sins, Christ rose from the dead, Christ offers us forgiveness and justification by grace alone, and we have eternal life in him alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. That's the gospel. Paul writes that when he preached this, he found that the Lord had opened a door. Only God opens doors. Jesus said, as recorded in John 6.65, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Only God opens the pathway to people's hearts that Christ might come in, renovate, make new, and complete the work of righteousness within us. John Calvin wrote, since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is open to all. There is nothing else to hinder us from entering but our own unbelief. But to enter in, they must hear the word, the gospel. And that certainly was what indicated in verse 12. Now look at verse 13. I still had no peace because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia, having no peace of mind. The King James Version says, No rest in my spirit. Paul was in anguish over the Corinthian church, and he left Troas. But Paul is going on more. What's going on in Paul is more than just a feeling. It's more than a feeling, more than a feeling. When I hear that old song they used to play, I began dreaming more than a feeling till I see Paul walk away. Is that how it goes? That one's for Pastor Joe. (laughs) Paul, in his walking away, is going on more than just a feeling. He's looking at the logic of his present situation with Titus, not arriving when he should have, in the dire spiritual condition of the Corinthian church. He had no peace because of his reasoning and logic, and because of this, he left. 
And it wasn't because of his feelings. So you ask yourself a question. Was Paul out of the will of God when he was jumping ship, so to speak? Leaving Troas when God had obviously been at work through him? God had opened the door for the gospel. Should he have left? I'm not going to answer that question, nor can I answer that question. Only God knows. But because he left, we have this text. God is good. He is sovereign and in control and praise him. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. Do you believe this statement? Do you think the Holy Spirit was being spectacular when he inspired Paul to write the word pas in the Greek, which means all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, all things, all the things that we think are a train wreck in our lives, God can and will use for his glory in your good and maturity. Do you trust him? Paul does. So how is Paul going to deal with his discouragement? Look with me at verse 14. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Paul turns from his discouragement, his frustration, his anxiety, his conflicts on the outside, fears within, and all the things he can't control, and he looks the other way and looks to God at all the things that he can be thankful for. Listen to the psalmist David in Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He says, put your hope in God. This is what Paul is doing. He's encouraging self in the Lord. What a lesson for us. How many times we look at life's problems and sometimes those life's problems find great company, right? We look at all this stuff coming against us, but yet we don't look to the creator of the universe who created all things, sustains all things, owns all things, and has victory over all things, including the devil and the kingdom of darkness. We should proclaim with the prophet Jeremiah, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So we see later on in chapter 7, Titus did show up and with a good report. The Corinthians responded well to Paul's severe letter. Look with me briefly at chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. So when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. The Corinthians repented as a result of Paul's letter. His brother in Christ, Titus, is okay. God comforted him with this great news, and Paul has so much more to be thankful for. Saving him from his former self-destructive ways, from his dead religion, and giving him a true righteousness that is not his own, but is Christ's. When Paul goes on to explain and write about this, he does it in a very strange and unfamiliar way. He uses two word pictures, one that I'll speak about this week and one, Lord willing, the next. Go with me to the text. Verse 14 again. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ 
and through us spreads everywhere the aroma of the knowledge of him. Now that term, triumph, triumphal procession, is an interesting term, and it may not mean what you think it means. I like the part in, in The Princess Bride where Inugia Montoya and Vincini and Fezzik have just scaled the cliff, and they came up the cliff with a rope, and the Dread Pirate Roberts is chasing them. And Vincini cut the rope, and they rush over to the cliff to make sure they fell, fell and not following them anymore. And Vincini looks down and says, He didn't fall! Inconceivable! And Inoya Montoya turns to him and says, You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Well, the word triambule, triumph, may not mean what you think it means. It is a technical term, and it had significant meaning in the Roman world. A triumph was the highest honor that could ever be paid to a victorious Roman general. When a Roman government, when the Roman government gave a general a triumph, that was, in today's vernacular, the bomb, the ultimate. Upon returning of the general and his army from a particular battle, the general would request the Roman Senate for a triumph. But before any Roman general could be granted one, however he must have achieved certain things. He had to have been the actual commander-in-chief in the field and not a secondary leader. The war had to have occurred on foreign soil, and it had to have been won over a foreign foe and not in a civil war. The campaign had to have been completely finished, the region which was conquered completely pacified, and the victorious troops brought home. The battle had to have ended the war so decisively that the Roman army could have come home after the battle. And as a result of this campaign, a positive extension of Roman territory must have been gained and not merely a disaster retrieved or an attack repelled. And lastly, at least 5,000 enemy troops had to have been killed in that battle, falling into the category of a slaughter. If these conditions were met, the Roman Senate would declare a triumph. Triumphs didn't happen very often, probably once in a lifetime. Now, there were certain things that were characteristic of a triumph. A triumph always took the same circuitous route through the city of Rome. As they went through on the circuitous route, incense would be burning on all the, all the, all the temples and the altars along the route, and then the city would be garlanded with flowers, and the women would be throwing flowers during the praise. So the city became very, very fragrant, combining this incense with the flowers it became filled with a sweet aroma that came known as the smell of victory. And there was always a special order to the procession. First came the Roman senators and the chief magistrates. Then the trumpeters who were heralding what was coming. Then the captives of the foreign land. They were led forth in chains, drugged naked or sometimes clothed, and destined for either slavery or public execution in the arena. Then came the lictors or the punishers, who were beating these captives with rods. And then came the musicians, followed by the priests swinging their censers with a sweet-smelling incense burning. Then came the spoils of war, the carts of gold and commissioned paintings showing the people lining the streets what was won. Next came the conquered king and rulers of the captured land. And after this huge entourage, finally came the conquering general himself. He was standing in a chariot drawn by four horses. He was dressed in a purple tunic embroidered with golden palm leaves and over it a gold purple toga marked out with golden stars. In his hand, he had a scepter with a Roman eagle on the top of it. His face painted red to honor the god of Jupiter. 
and over his head a slave held the laurel crown or the crown of Jupiter. Then came the general's family, followed by white bulls to be sacrificed at the temple of Jupiter. And lastly came the soldiers from the victorious army wearing their armored decorations and shouting, Triumph, triumph, triumph. It was quite a spectacular sight. Very, very impressive. A true public spectacle putting conquered people to open shame and exalting the conquering general. So you can start to see where Paul is going with this term. So in Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he knew that they knew about triumphs. As I mentioned earlier, Corinth was conquered in 146 B.C. by the Roman consul Lucius Mummius Acacius because of their opposition to the king, to Roman rule. I personally think it was because Mummius had found out that someone in Corinth had called him Lucy. But whatever the case, according to Roman history, the triumph that Rome granted Mummius was one of the most spectacular that the world had ever seen. And then in A.D. 51, only five or six years before Paul had written 2 Corinthians, Claudius had celebrated his triumph over the Britons. The word triumph is an amazing word picture that Paul uses here. There's only one other place in the New Testament that this term is used, and we find it in Colossians 2.15, and it tips us off to some of its meaning. Colossians 2.15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He, that is Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's the devil he's talking about. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Christ conquered Satan and his army at the cross. He disarmed them, stripped them of every weapon, and led them in triumphal procession. But there's one chief difference between Satan and Paul and has relevancy for us as Christians. Go to the text again. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Here's the two words. In Christ. Satan is not in Christ. These two magnificent words are truly, truly magnificent. When we are in Christ, that is, having surrendered our lives to him as our conquering commander, we become his captives and are led in triumphal procession. Yes, we are led as conquered foes. Christ said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Prior to our conversion, as with Paul, we were in extreme opposition to the king, Jesus Christ. But we were sinful at birth, writes the psalmist in Psalm 51. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And no person is exempt from this fact. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Only one person who has ever walked the face of the earth was without sin, and that's Jesus Christ. We are all under the condemnation of God at birth. It doesn't matter how Minnesota nice you are. It doesn't matter how you compare with the good or bad people of this world whether you go to church or not, whether you keep some religious ceremony or traditions, whether you keep the Ten Commandments or not, which no one has. In fact, God's law only makes us conscious of our own sin, Romans 3.20. We can't keep the law. Everything that does not proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14.23. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's spiritual death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. 
D.L. Moody said, God has nothing to say to the self-righteous unless you humble yourself before him in the dust and confess before him your iniquities and sins. The gate of heaven, which is open only to sinners, saved by grace, must be shut against you forever. That is where the Apostle Paul was in his spiritual condition before he met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. And each of us has human beings created in the image of God, but fallen because of our sin, are either a slave to sin or we are captured and reigned by Christ through our faith and reverential trust in him. Either sin reigns in you or Christ reigns in you. Which is it? So there are three beautiful applications I want to draw your attention to this morning from the image of the triumph in Christ and what happens when we surrender our lives to him as our conquering general. You see in the bulletin here, I've got three main headings. The first, when you are captured by Christ and he becomes your Lord and Savior, something magnificent happens. You become his slave, his bondservant. Being a slave implies ownership of a master. You say, that's wonderful. Why would I want to become a slave of Jesus Christ? Ephesians 4, 1 says that you are a prisoner for the Lord to do his will. When God called you to be his own, Christ conquered your soul and made you his slave. That victorious, glorious event on Calvary, when Christ willingly shed his blood, was the event that purchased your soul. You were bought with a price. And the unpayable debt that we owed God for our sin, paid in full. Paul paints a picture of a grateful, sinful man met by grace on the Damascus Road and now commissioned as a glad and willing servant for the King of Kings. We're not dealing here with a man and his genius. We are dealing with a man and his owner. And that's really one of the biggest, if not the big question that we face. Here in the 21st century, we hear so much about self-esteem and finding your self-worth and self-value and all that. The big question is light in life is not who am I? The big question is whose am I? When you read the Bible, the mega issue is right relation to God and to whom you belong. Whose are you? Another fascinating picture Paul paints here is this. He paints a picture of a prisoner marched in triumph on his way to suffer. Christ said of Paul in Acts 9.15, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That is one of our highest callings in life, Christian, to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And it has many forms in life. Trials in life are a for a Christian are the Lord's refining fire that our faith may be proven Genuine, pure as gold, First Peter says. God purposes in trials to give you hupomone, that staying power, the tenacity of spirit that holds up under pressure that you can get under and remain under any trial and endure it for the glory of God. Trials come that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, James chapter 1. But know this, Christian. Our suffering is not for our condemnation and destruction, but it's for our holiness and God's glory. 
Paul knows his path leads to suffering. He sees himself as a captured enemy, captured by Christ, and commissioned to extend the love and suffering exemplified by Christ to the world. And Jesus Christ, in his, he is Paul's and ours, Hupagramas, our example. My last point is this, victory in Christ. Jesus Christ's triumph over us was really saving us, own, saving us from our own destruction and leading us into life. We are spared. We are not in one last march to be executed in a final show in front of a conquering city. Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God that we might become his captives. In Christ conquering of us through his willing death on the cross, it was his love for us in our helpless, hopeless state that led him there. By his grace alone, he was our substitute for the penalty of death due to us for our sins. He took the wrath on our behalf. In his vicarious substitutionary death, what was the last thing that he said when he hung on the cross? It is finished. And when he said that, he meant it. Not only in terms of his own deed, but also in terms of securing the fullness of salvation, victory, and forgiveness by that deed. In that event in history, in his victorious, efficacious battle, to secure a humanity that would worship him forever was once for all. And that's really God's eternal covenant. That before the world began, the Father purposed in Jesus Christ to redeem humanity, to give that humanity to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the purpose of praising him forever and ever and ever. And all those people who the Father determined before the creation of the world would be part of that redeemed humanity will by the Father's drawing and the grace of salvation, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfill the Father's plan. And Jesus Christ will will lose none of them. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many promises of God has made, they are yes in Christ and amen to the glory of God. We were hostile to the King, disobedient in every way, alienated from him. But Christ's weaponless triumph over us leads us into new hope and new life, both in this life and the life to come. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we are not only led as captives to become eager prisoners to willingly suffer for his holy purposes, but we are catapulted into the triumphal parade as part of the conquering army of the Lord. We now walk with Christ as our king, celebrating the victory he had over our life. And we proclaim with Paul in Romans 8 that in all things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God be for us, who can be against us? Isn't that great news, family? I want you to know and feel the facts about God and his greatness here and how precious your salvation is. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What do these facts about God's sovereign power and unending love for us do to our complaining about life, our fears, our anxieties we have day in and day out? They should weather away, shouldn't they? Christ said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free.
I will let that one rest and, and stir deep. Freedom in Christ. Victory in Christ. Triumph, triumph, triumph in Christ. We rejoice with Christ in all the multitudes who stand by the side as we march as captives through the city. Unlike the solemn faces of the captives in a Roman triumphal procession, we become victors, conquerors with Christ in his invasion and overthrow to bring a redeemed humanity for his glory and eternal purpose. And we as slaves, captives, and celebrating members of Christ's army, we take this good news and we spread it. We spread it as seeds of life amongst the nations of the world. We march triumphantly with Christ as our king in his victory parade dressed in the full army of God with a belt of truth buckled around our waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with our feet fitted with a readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, we take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And we have the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. That is the full armor of God. And we march victoriously with the aroma of Christ and his conquest. And that, my dear family, is the sweetest smell of the greatest victory the universe has ever known or will known. But that aroma has varying and conflicting results in the world, doesn't it? And this is where we will find ourselves, Lord willing, on the next Lord's Day. Thank you for your attention. I'll close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful picture of your grace. The work of your Son, Jesus Christ, is finished, complete. We cannot add to it. This day, Lord, you have set before us life and death. May we choose life, life to the full, only found in Christ. In Christ for our faith, in Christ for our hope, in Christ for our peace, in Christ for our life. Everything flowing from our union with Christ. You, O Lord, who created us without our help, will not save us without our consent. Therefore, I pray, Father, may the good news of this once-for-all conquering King be the smell of victory, the aroma of life to all who hear, and not the stench of death. Now is the time of your favor. Now is the dime and the day of salvation. To Christ be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.